Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Lord, thank you for bringing us here together under the umbrella of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you use me as your mouthpiece this morning. You know, Lord, the preparation time that was prepared for this sermon. You you know the restless nights. I pray all of that was for your glory, that all of that will be worth it this morning. Holy Spirit, use me, guide me, teach your people, convict them, but also encourage them. Let them not hear me or see me, but, but hear and see you. Let them hear a voice within a voice, Lord. Holy Spirit, <clears throat> I do all things by the power of you. Because without you, this sermon will be nothing. This sermon will be useless. So use me for, for Christ's sake and for his glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is great to be with you this Lord's Day. Uh, I look forward to always seeing your guys' faces and and talking about the week, talking about what you have ate, talking about what you're going to eat. Uh, It's always great to see the family. Have you ever wondered, and, and I think about this regularly, and I shouldn't, But have you ever wondered what the moments will be like before you pass away? Let's suppose you had less than 24 hours to live. Let's suppose you had less than 11 hours to live. Let's suppose you knew exactly how you were going to die. Suppose you even knew who your killers would be. You even knew the time and the place of your death. What type of emotions would you feel? I'm sure many of us would be very anxious, but also very scared of the thought of dying, the thought of leaving our loved ones behind. And for many of us, the thought of death itself doesn't put fear in our hearts, but the process of death can be extremely terrifying because nobody wants to go through pain. Nobody wants to go through suffering. Let's suppose, so you have less than 24 hours to live. Uh, You you know how you're going to die. You you know who your killers will be. You even know the time and the place of your death. Now, let's suppose you had to give one last message to your family and your friends. Imagine you sitting in a room with your closest friends and family members, and you have to tell them that your death is very, very near. Your death is around the corner. What will your final words to them be? What will your final instructions would be? Many of us will go around the room and we probably would express our love and our appreciation for each individual that is there. And throughout history, there have been many memorable farewell speeches. Let me give you two, for example. Yankees great, Lou Gehrig. And what is called the baseball's Gettysburg Address said, at his retirement, 
fans, for the past two years, you have been reading that you've been reading about my bad break. Lou Gehrig um, had got a- ALS, so he was he was forced to retire. But these are the famous words. Yet today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Probably the most famous dying farewell speech, and probably the most saddest farewell speech that gets everybody, and I think you know what I'm going to say, is the last scene between Jack and Rose in the movie Titanic. You remember the scene where Jack is freezing in the ocean, and Rose is laying on a door. You remember what he tells Rose? Promise me that you'll survive. Promise me you'll never give up. No matter what happens, no matter how hopeless, promise me now, Rose, that you'll never let go of that promise. Rose says she promises, and we all know what happened to Jack. (laughs) Goodbyes are never easy. There's much confusion. There's much heartbreak, anxiety from all the people who are involved. That is our setting in our text this morning. Jesus has less than 24 hours to live. He knows how he will die. He knows who his killers will be. He even knows the time and place where it will happen. That time is now upon us. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he has been speaking about his departure to his disciples. But it's only until now they finally realize that their leader is going away. For the past three and a half years, 12 ordinary men who have had the privilege to walk, to eat, to sleep, and even be discipled by God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. For the past three and a half years, their lives have been on a roller coaster, forever changed by the God-man, Jesus Christ. They have seen water turn to wine. They have seen Jesus walk on water. They have seen Mother Nature itself obey him. They have seen demons cast it out. They have seen the healing of sick people. They even seen a dead man rise back to life. But all of that is now over. And their teacher must go complete his mission. And he must go back home. The disciples at this moment are completely heartbroken. They are filled with sorrow. And, and here in these verses, we will see Jesus as the pastor that he is, as the shepherd that he is. He will come to the aid of his flock to comfort and give promises to ease the troubled hearts of his sheep. This morning, I have three points I would like for us to consider. Number one, genuine love. Genuine love. Number two, supernatural help. Supernatural help. And number three, indescribable peace. Indescribable peace. Let's recall what just happened in Chapter 13, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper has just been taking place. They're in the upper room. Jesus shocks everyone by telling them that one of them is going to betray him. Peter, as he usually does, speaks up and he says that I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. Jesus tells Peter that that shocking truth about himself. Verse 38, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. There's much confusion and sorrow going through the disciples' hearts and minds at this point. 
That is why Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 14, tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. He knows what they're going through at this moment. With the shadow of the cross slowly coming, becoming more and more of a reality, and it's starting to pierce the very soul of Christ, Jesus puts aside his troubled soul to comfort his disciples' troubled hearts. He begins to tell them that he must go and he must prepare a place for them. That in his father's house there are many rooms. He reminds them once again that he and the father are one. Not that the son is the father, but, but the son and the father are one in essence, one in nature, and one in deity. As Colossians 1.15 tells us, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That is why Jesus says in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the father. We ended last week's sermon with Jesus telling his disciples that the works that they will do will be greater than his own. Meaning the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will not be confined to Jerusalem or the small populations of, in the area. But the gospel of Christ will spread throughout the nations, resulting in salvation to every tongue, to every tribe, and to every people group. That is where we left off last Lord's Day. And if you will, let's stand for the reading of our verses this morning. John chapter 14. Verses 15 through 31 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 8, 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will not see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is it who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not as scary as it said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Verse 23, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me, whoever does, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring your remembrance, all that I have said to you. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place. So when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, 
so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. May God add the blessing to the reading of this word. You may be seated this morning. These verses we could spend the rest of the year on. They're so deep. They're so rich. Christ's words here are so powerful. But let's look at the first point. Genuine love. Genuine love. Look back at at verse 15, if you will. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We often don't associate love and obedience with one another. Part because we have seen the abuse of one loving someone so much that they will obey that person even in wrongdoings. I think about the teenage boy asking the teenage girl, if you love me, you will sleep with me. Or if you love me, you will take this drug with me. We also don't connect love and obedience with one another because we see love as freedom. We're Americans. We see love as self-expression. Doing what you want to do when you want to do it. Doing whatever pleases you. While obedience, we tend to associate with power, with hierarchy, maybe even oppression. But that's not what Jesus has in mind when he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obeying what Christ commands is a good thing. Why? Because his law itself is good and holy and righteous. Love for Christ is inseparable from with obedience, meaning you can't have love for Christ and not obey Christ. And in the believer's life, you can't have one without the other. The proof of our love for Christ is, is not only an oral profession, but also living your profession out by daily obedience to God's commands. Those who are here and that are married, or maybe you're in a relationship with someone, for your relationship to last, simply telling your significant other, I love you, with no action, isn't going to get you very far. Some of us learn that the hard way. The old saying goes, actions speak louder than words. But, but here, it's different. Because your actions and your love for Christ are in harmony with each other. They're in sync with one another. Your willingness to obey Christ's commands is what separates who is real from who is fake. And Jesus makes that point plain in verse 24, if you look there. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It is impossible for the believer to follow Christ and not come, come under his authority of his law. And, and that is why we don't profess Jesus only as our Savior, but we profess him as our Lord. We don't just profess Jesus as the one who died for our sins, but we profess him as our king. We profess to come under, we profess to come under his authority, to come under his power, and to come under his control. Now understand that, that Jesus, nor am I, are advocating that you must be saved, or, or that you are saved by keeping Christ's commands. You are not saved by keeping the law. And, and that's what a legalist would, would think. 
that your salvation, the basis of your salvation, is law-keeping. Let me give you an example. A legalist would read this passage backwards. They would say, they would say in, instead, of you love, instead of, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, they read it as, you will keep my commandments if you love me. In other words, we must prove our love for God by doing what he commands. No, we don't obey Christ's commands because we're trying to prove our love for him. We obey Christ's commands simply out of our love for him. We don't try to prove anything to Christ. But we do everything that he commands out of our love for him, out of our, our obedience to him. And that is the basis of our obeying God's law. Love. That should be the basis of you doing anything. Love. In Christianity today, there are four words, or you can say that there are three teachings that are frowned upon. Hell, sin, and God's law. Many are even being taught that, that the law is an enemy of grace. I even had one man tell me that the Old Testament is full of the law, and the New Testament is full of grace. Brothers and sisters, the God in the Old Testament is the same God in the new. His character does not change. The God who wrote the Ten Commandments on the tables of stone is the same God who died on Calvary's cross. The same God here who says, if you love me, keep my commandments, also said at Sinai that he will show mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. The one who brought Israel out of Egypt, who led them across the wilderness and gave them the law, was none other than Christ himself. Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth has passed away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Yes, Christ accomplished the law. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. But Christ has accomplished the law that, that held us under bondage in order to save us to obey and follow the law freely and joyfully. Did you notice that Christ said, keep my commandments? You never hear of Moses saying, keep my commandments. But Christ says, keep my commandments. Once again, exalting his lordship, exalting who he is. Our relationship with Christ must be one of love and obedience. Drop down and, and look at the first half of verse 21, if you will. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is it who loves me. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is it who loves me. Let's first ask the question, what are the commandments of Christ? Well, in a broad sense, it's the entire law of God. In a more broader sense, it's the entire word of God. Jesus summed up the, the Ten Commandments in Matthew 22 Verse 36 to 38, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Question, how are we doing in obeying that law? Do you love God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your heart? What are the things that occupy your mind? What are the things that that set your heart flamed and, 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 make you, and that, that give you a lot of passion and you pursue the most. I encourage you to weigh those things out on a scale and see which one weighs more. 
In a more narrow sense, it's the new command that Christ gave to his disciples in chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also love one another. We are called as Christians to love one another just as Christ loved us. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult at times. Question, how are we doing in keeping this command, church? How are we doing in loving one another? Jesus says in chapter 13 also, Jesus, our love for one another will be a sign of our discipleship. Ask yourselves, can the world tell that you and I are disciples of Christ? Is our love for one another that evident? Is our love for one another that pure? One practical way we can accomplish that command is by making ourselves known to one another. That is why we stress, don't leave right away after service, but stay five to ten minutes. Create in your mind uh, uh, a name of, of people and, and go around and, and shake their hand. Ask how they're doing. Ask, ask what stood out to you in the sermon. Is there anything I can pray with you over? Maybe we can meet for lunch and, and talk about some things. Those are good and healthy ways in which we can make ourselves available and, and how we can show our love for one another. Another way to do that is join a local church. If you say you love Christ, then join the local church. If you say you believe in Christ, then make your profession visible by joining the local church. All of us have come from backgrounds where some of us might have been hurt from, from big churches and, and by pastors and, and members. But let me remind you that bad apples don't ruin the tree. The church is a beautiful thing. Allow us to love you and, and, and allow yourself to love others as well. Scroll down to verses 21 to 22. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is it who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. Judas, not a scared, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What Two great promises Christ gives those who obey him out of love. First, he says that that he who loves me will be loved by my father. So you get a double love and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. Christ will make himself known by the power of the Holy Spirit to all believers who obey his commands. And the second promise, he says, he and the father will make their home with him. This is the reward of loving obedience, fellowship with the Father and the Son. So how should we keep Christ's commands? In what attitude of heart shall we obey them? Well, first, everyone who loves Jesus keeps his commands implicitly. Everyone who loves Jesus keeps his commands implicitly, meaning we obey Christ because simply Christ tells us to. Simply Christ bids us to. He is our rule of authority. It is only he who we obey because he is our Lord. Second, we love if we love Christ, we keep his commandments impartially. Meaning we don't pick and choose which one of Christ's commands are best suit for us. As if some commands are outdated and, and some commands are not fair. But all of God's law is good because he is good. And lastly, we obey Christ's commands cheerfully. 
Brothers and sisters, Christ's commands are not burdensome, as, as 1 John tells us. We should esteem it a privilege to obey God's law. Let us be like the psalmist who says in chapter 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Let us be people like that, who enjoy God's law, who embrace God's law, who love obeying God's law, who love to give glory to the Father and the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the last verse, if you will, in chapter chapter 14, verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus just summed up my entire point. Christ says he obeys his Father's commands so that the world may know that he has love for the Father, that his, that his love for the Father is real. Jesus' whole life and ministry was one of obedience to the Father. Jesus' will was to do the Father's will. Since our Lord Jesus Christ obeyed the Father during his whole life in, in earthly ministry, how much more should we obey and keep Christ's commands? Christ is our model of loving obedience. But not only Christ, but, but the entire Godhead is one in obedience with one another. You see the Son obeying the Father and the Holy Spirit obeying the Father and the Son and, and re- applying that redemption to you all. If the Holy Trinity is one in obedience, how much more should you be in obedience to God? If you are here this morning and you are not saved, or maybe you are here and you think that you are saved, you have a commandment as well to obey. The Bible says you must repent of your sins. You must turn to Jesus Christ. And if you don't do that now in loving obedience and in faith, then you will do that one day in shame and in misery. As the Bible says in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And if you do that, Jesus gives you a glorious promise, a wonderful promise. And we will see that glorious promise in the third person of the Trinity. Which leads us to our second point, supernatural help. Supernatural help. Notice verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This verse looks back at John thirteen thirty three, where the Lord had just addressed them as little children. And at this moment, the disciples must be feeling like their father is forsaking them. But Christ gives them an amazing promise that, that he will not abandon them as orphans. He will not leave them helpless. They will not be like sheep without a shepherd, like, like a helpless believer in a hostile world without a defender. But rather, an advocate will come to them. That advocate is the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, the Holy Spirit is seen as the forgotten member of the Trinity. Some call him an it and speak of the Holy Spirit as some sort of impersonal force. There's much mystery when it comes to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which which leads in confusion, abuse and lowering the Holy Spirit in person and in deity. But in our verses this morning, as Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit to his disciples, allow Jesus to introduce you and teach you as well on who this this mystery person is. Who is the third member of the Godhead? 
And in these verses, Jesus gives us three descriptions of the Holy Spirit. We will see him as helper. We will see him as spirit of truth. And we will see him as teacher. Let's first look at the Holy Spirit as helper. Verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is the first time that the Holy Spirit has been mentioned as Christ's special gift to his people. And he is a wonderful gift. Notice how Christ says, another helper. Up to this point, the only helper the disciples knew of was Jesus Christ. I'm sure the disciples were thinking that upon Jesus' departure, that we left helpless. with no one to turn to. But Christ will not leave them as orphans. But he will send another helper. This word helper carries with it a, a, a various uh, uh, meanings. Some, some of you might say comforter in your Bible. But the best translation of this word helper is advocate. Advocate. The idea is the Holy Spirit comes alongside the believer whom Christ has prayed for. For those believers who obey Christ out of love and he advocates for them. The word helper is meant to be defined in in legal settings. To refer to an attorney making a defense in, in a court on behalf of someone accused. The Holy Spirit strengthens those who belong to Christ. The Holy Spirit comes alongside them in support of the battle in temptation, to endure trials of this world, and to counter the accusations of the devil. The Holy Spirit helps us through and through in our Christian walk. And thank God for that. Because you and I, left to our own strength, could not handle the battle between the flesh and the attacks of the devil. Notice that word that Christ says, another, in verse 16. This word, another, isn't another in a sense of different, or in a sense of lesser, but another of the same kind, another that is equal. The Holy Spirit is not lesser in deity, but is co-equal to the Father and the Son. Brothers and sisters, what a description of the Holy Spirit. What What a great gift that Christ gives to us. He is our defense attorney. He will help us, and he will speak on our behalf. There are many times when I've been out sharing the gospel, and in the middle of talking to someone, I've said in my, in my head, Lord, how am I going to answer this question? Or what am I going to say to that? And long behold, the advocate comes alongside of me. And I become his mouthpiece. And I begin to remember things that I've studied months ago. And he speaks through me. What a great gift. That God gives to his people. Let's look at the second description of the Holy Spirit. And that is the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. Verse 17. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Christ bestows another title on the spirit. The spirit of truth. The master of all truth. For the disciples, they've been walking with the way, the truth, and the life, as verse 6 describes Jesus, for the the past three and a half years. As Jesus, all Jesus ever said was truth. Everything ever Jesus ever predicted came true. And upon Jesus leaving, the disciples were probably wondering, where are we going to find truth now? Where will our source of truth come from? Answer, inside of them. 
That is amazing. Inside of them. The Holy Spirit, who was called here, the Spirit of Truth, will, in, will dwell inside them. And every person who calls upon the name of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is our source of truth. And, and God communicates the truth to his own. First John describes the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit is the Spirit is truth. Brothers and sisters, we should continually look to the Spirit to reveal to us truth as we read the Scriptures and as we grow and learn in our everyday life. We are fallible human beings that rely on our own philosophies and, and, and our traditions and our biases at times. Rather than relying on the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. This title, Spirit of Truth, also means that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is, was the one behind inspiring men from all parts of the land to pin the very words of God. That is why we need him to help us understand the Bible. One practical way we can apply this is pray that the Holy Spirit will help you before you read. You'll be surprised on how much that helps. Ask for clarity. Ask for illumination. Ask for understanding. Ask for a better, more sweet picture of God's glory. Remember what Jesus said in verse 14. If you ask me anything, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Family, asking for understanding of God's words are, are, are prayers God loves to answer. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And the Holy Spirit will bless any, any ministry that is built upon the truth. Brothers and sisters, churches that you see around town and on television with large amounts of people attending doesn't mean that truth is being preached there. Just because they can quote scripture back and forth doesn't mean anything. Because the demons and the devil are the best theologians. People love to have their ears tickled and, and they love to have their emotions stirred up more than what's reality and what is true. We here at Reformation Bible Church pride ourselves in preaching, believing, exhorting the truth. We stand on the truth. And the fact that you will wake up and choose this church to be where you will worship on the Lord's Day is a clear testament that the Holy Spirit will bless any church whose foundations is built upon the truth. And if you'd like to know more about that, speak to one of the elders after church. We would love to have you and, and be a part of this local body. The Holy Spirit will also bless any believer who loves the truth. The believer who loves God's word and who obeys God's word. These blessings are not physical or material, but they're internal and they're spiritual. The blessings are you will have a desire and a deeper understanding of God's word. You will want to live out God's word and, and you will have an eagerness to tell others about God's word. You will be walking truth because the spirit of truth lives inside of you. Back to verse 17. Look at what's said after Jesus says spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him nor sees him. Or I might have that backwards. Neither sees him or knows him. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God. The world cannot receive because the world does not know him and the world cannot see him. Our Lord puts an emphasis on that word cannot. It's almost like he wants that written in bold and highlighted. Just like when you were a dead sinner, when you were unable to save yourself, when you were unable to turn to Christ on your own free will, the same fact applies here to the world. You couldn't choose Christ on your own. 
because you couldn't see him and you didn't know him. Just like the world. The, the world, with all of its so-called strength and power and freedom, can't choose the Holy Spirit. It can't see the Holy Spirit. It can't know the Holy Spirit. They cannot receive this special gift of the Holy Spirit. The world is full of lies. And it's under the very influence of the one whom is the king of lies, the devil. How can it receive the spirit of truth? And in all honesty, the world doesn't want truth. And we will see that in fuller revelation next year in the elections. What did the Lord mean when he says it neither sees him? What does that mean? I mean, we often hear of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? It neither sees him. How can a visible spirit be seen? 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Jesus is speaking of not a physical seeing, but a spiritual seeing. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The world cannot receive the spirit because the world isn't born again. The world isn't elect. But God, in his loving kindness, has redeemed people, has redeemed you and I, us, who were people of the world. He redeemed us out of the world. And now we share in the blessings and riches and riches that are in Christ Jesus. And we now await our king and our promised kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth because we can see the kingdom. The world can't grasp that. The world can't understand that. That is a special gift that you believers have. Look at the ending of verse 17, if you will. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Brothers and sisters, we do not assume that the Holy Spirit was not present and active and did not dwell in the hearts of the Old Testament saints. That is a fact. The Holy Spirit was alive in the Old Testament. But here Jesus is speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit in fuller measure, in fuller influence, in fuller grace, in a fuller manifestation than he ever did before. And we will see that at the day of Pentecost. That is amazing because you are the products of that. You have the Holy Spirit in fuller measure, in fuller degree. You have the promise that Christ is speaking of here. Let's look back at the last description. Let's look at the last description of the Holy Spirit. And, and here we will see him as teacher. Teacher. Verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John Calvin said, God has therefore two ways of teaching. First, he sounds in the ears by the hearts, by the mouth of men. And secondly, he addresses us inwardly by his spirit. Even as I am speaking to you now, you hear the word going forth. You hear the words that I am saying. But it's the Holy Spirit's job to make clear my words. To convict you and to comfort you by my words. To apply my words to your life. That is why before the sermon, I pray that the Holy Spirit will lead us and will direct us in this sermon. Because without him involved, this sermon means nothing. 
without the Holy Spirit actively working in your life, my words are just words. The Holy, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will teach his disciples all things. This doesn't mean all things absolutely. The Holy Spirit's work is not to lead us in all historical, geographical, or, or mathematical skills. Man, that would be great. But the Holy Spirit will teach us mysteries concerning the kingdom of God, the gospel, and the mind and the will of God that is revealed to us in Scripture, in order that we may believe to righteousness and make a confession of, of, of faith. The Holy Spirit will lead us in all truth necessary for faith and obedience, as, as Acts twenty twenty one says. And he does this, and, and this also does not mean the Holy Spirit will teach us new things. That is a great error in a lot of churches now. That the Holy Spirit is leading and, and guiding people in new revelation and giving people new inspiration as if the canon of scripture is still open. No, he will not do that. But rather, he will teach us and he will enable us to discern truth from error. And we will understand the mind and the will of God as it is revealed to us in scripture. The great Puritan John Owen said concerning this point, who will the Holy Spirit teach? He will teach those who are meek and humble, those who give themselves continually to prayer, meditation and study in God's word day and night, and those who strive to conform their lives to the truths he instructs them in. The more you seek for God's truth, the more the Holy Spirit will bring light, clarity, and he will teach you all things pertaining to God's truth. And if you say to yourself, well, I don't know God's truth, then you're not relying on the Holy Spirit. This must have been great encouragement to these disciples. And this should be great encouragement to you as well, brothers and sisters. If you have low self-esteem, maybe you think that you're not smart enough to understand God's word. Or you're not capable enough to share the gospel with a complete stranger. If you think of those things, then what does that say about the one who dwells inside of you? Is the Holy Spirit not powerful enough to overcome your limitations? We should say, no, trust and believe in him. The same spirit that helped and guided Jesus Christ here during his earthly ministry is the same spirit that lives inside of you. Get to know him. He will help you. He will teach you and he will guide you in all truth. And if you're a Christian this morning, take comfort that you're not sitting here alone. But you have the third member of the Godhead living inside of you. The one who hovered over the waters in the beginning it's the same one who dwells within you. That is amazing. And Jesus tells us in the, ending, in the ending of verse 16, did you catch it? The Holy Spirit will be with us forever. Forever. Those who have placed their faith in Christ alone will never cease to ever be alone. You will not be left like an orphan, but the Holy Spirit will be your lifetime companion. Let's look at the last point indescribable peace indescribable peace <clears throat> we often hear of this word peace i want world peace peace treaties everyone wants peace peace is a popular word it's almost an impossible reality peace is something that everyone strives for it's hardly ever obtained this is, very, this is a very troubling and, and sinful world that we are living in. And people in this day and age look for peace in, 
in self-help books, in seminars and conferences. Some turn to religion. Some look for peace in shopping, eating, exercising. While some find peace in, in drugs and in, in sex and love and, and sin. Peace is something the world is searching for. Something that the world sees as an invaluable treasure. Something that the world is longing for. But here in John 14, Jesus gives that, that one thing that is so longed for, that one thing that is, that is so treasured to his disciples and to us. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. At the eve of Christ's death, Christ leaves his followers with something that the world will never have. And that is peace. Listen to these words by Jonathan Edwards. It was a strange benefit that he had to bestow on his children. Now he was about to leave this world as to his human presence. Listen to this. Silver and gold he had none. For while in his estate of humiliation, he was poor. The foxes had holes, the birds of the air had nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, as Luke 9, verse 58 tells us. He had no earthly estate to leave his disciples, who were, as it were, his children, his family. But get this, he had peace to give them. What an amazing thought that is. What Edwards is saying is, out of all the things fathers and mothers usually leave their children in their wills and estates, Christ leaves his disciples something so foreign, something so odd. Christ had no earthly blessings such as money, cars, or or houses to leave them, but he had peace to give them. Matthew Henry remarks here, and this is, this is great. When Christ left the world, he made his will, just as we would make a will. And, and hear this description. His soul he bequeathed to his father. His body to Joseph. His clothes fell to the soldiers. His mother left to the care of John. But what should he leave his poor disciples who had left all for him? Silver and gold, he had none. But he had left them what, what was far better. His peace. In this verse, I want you to notice four ways in which Christ's peace differs from the world's peace. Number one, the peace Christ gives to his followers is true peace. The peace Christ gives to his followers is true peace. Christ is called in Isaiah 9-6, the Prince of Peace. And it's a fitting title for our Lord because he alone obtained peace and reconciliation for us. We, by nature, were sinners and were enemies of God. We were under the law that only brought shame, wrath, and condemnation. But what Christ does is he removes that shame and guilt by dying for our sins, rising for our justification, so we are no longer enemies of God, but we are friends of God. The Apostle Paul tells us in, in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, we have peace with our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's the foundation of true peace. You are no longer at war with God. The war is over. You are at peace with God. When was the last time you reflected on that thought when you were going through a trial and a trouble? Does the fact that you have been justified by the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ ever pop into your mind when you are going through a difficult time? Or do you need family around you? Or, or do you need to go somewhere to let off steam? Who do you, where do you turn to for your peace? If your answer is no, then your idea of peace is something of the world's. Something that the world only offers. That limited peace. And your view of what Christ did on your behalf is not big enough to bring you peace. I strongly encourage you, if you're going through something right now, think about what Christ has done on your behalf. That on the cross, Christ took holy, sinful man, he took holy God, and he brought him together. And a peace treaty was signed. And in history, it tells us peace treaties have all been broken. This one will remain forever. If you answered yes, if you said yes, justification by faith alone is my peace, I always turn to that, then you have a sure foundation for happiness. Your soul is built on a rock that can never be moved, and you have a foundation of peace that is sufficient, and it will never be exhausted. Study the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Understand what Christ did on your behalf. The peace that God gives to his believers is something so so amazing that even the thought of it takes your breath away and it only brings you down to your knees to worship that wonderful God. Way number two, Christ's peace is his peace. Christ's peace is his peace. Notice Jesus says in the beginning of verse 27, my peace I give to you. The peace Christ gives his true followers is his peace. It's the peace he enjoys within himself. Though he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he was hated everywhere and persecuted by men and devils, in his estate of humiliation, where he had nowhere to rest in this world, yet in God, his Father, he had peace. Though men hid their face from him, he had peace with God. I would say Christ had an already not yet type of peace. What I mean is, while here on this earth, even though his soul was troubled at times, he was never without peace from the Father. And get this, when Christ had finished his labors and sufferings, and when he had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, he entered into his rest a state of the most blessed, perfect, and everlasting peace. This peace is something Christ not only obtained for himself, but also for his people. This is what it means to be united to Christ. We are united to Christ in his life, death, resurrection, and we also share with him in his peace. Brothers and sisters, you have peace right now. But your everlasting peace will be when you are resting in Christ, in heaven. 
That's the already not yet peace that you have. Think about that. Think about how that peace will be when you will be resting in Christ. No more pain. No more sin to tempt us and and our flesh to, to rise up in us. No more sufferings. But every day, every second, every moment, peace. Way number three. And I got this from Jonathan Edwards. Christ's peace is a sweeter peace, more satisfying peace. Christ's peace is a sweeter, more satisfying peace. Jesus says in verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. This peace Christ gives his true followers is far different and far more satisfying than the peace the world offers. It is a sweeter peace. This peace is so much above all natural men enjoy in worldly things. It's a peace, as Philippians 4, 7 says, that passes all understanding. The world can't understand it. The world can't understand if they know that you're going through something, but man, you have a smile on your face. Where does this come from? Where is this peace from? And then you go to share the gospel with them. We naturally want peace. And we have long for satisfaction in peace. The problem is, we find peace in all the wrong places. As C.S. Lewis said, we are too satisfied in making mud pies in the slums because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer at a holiday at the sea. Meaning, we are so fixed on the world's idea of peace when Jesus Christ's everlasting, satisfying peace is being offered to us. The world's peace is an external, materialistic, limited peace. Christ's peace is an internal peace, a legal declaration that you and God are no longer separated, that you are no longer under judgment of the law, but you are under grace. The world can't offer that. The world can't give that to you. And lastly, way number four, Christ's peace is an unfailing and eternal peace. Christ's peace is is an eternal, unfailing peace. People of the world have built their peace upon limited possessions and limited satisfaction. Christ offers his true followers a firm foundation of peace that will last forever. Jonathan Edwards said, the the world's peace are at best and most durable of them, like bubbles on the face of the water. They vanish in a moment. That is the world's peace. Christ's peace lasts for eternity. And hear this. When you have found that peace, when Christ is the source of your peace, the soul that has found him, who is as an apple tree among the trees of the wood, and sits under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit is sweet unto his taste. Do you see justification by by faith alone that way? That it's sweet to your soul. That it's an everlasting joy that the world can't grasp and the world can't take away. The peace you have with Christ is an everlasting peace. Something that will never fade or slip away. 
Peace from having to perform good works to obtain a perfect standing before a holy God. Peace from the law of condemnation. Peace from the slavery of sin. Peace from the bondage of the flesh. Peace from the curse of Adam. Brothers and sisters, are you resting in that peace this morning? Do you understand the workings of redemption that way? That how much precious blood it costs for you to have peace. If not, I beg you to forsake the world and, and no longer seek peace and rest in its vanities. Forsake those things which are, which are no other than, than the devil's baits and seek after this excellent peace and rest in Jesus Christ. That peace of God that passes all understanding. What a great promise our Lord gives to his disciples and he gives to his true followers. In just a few hours, Christ will leave. And in the midst of his departure, he gives the disciples something worth more than pure gold and diamonds. His peace. In the story, Christ will be taken away in just a few hours. The ruler of this world will come. But get this in verse 30. He has no power over me. The serpent will come, but his head will be crushed. And after the thorns, there will be a crown. And after the cross, there will be a throne. And Christ will sit on high. And he will share with the Father the glory that he had with him before the beginning of the world. This morning, if you are not saved, I invite you to a better portion. I beg you to repent of your sins. Acknowledge that you are in desperate need of a Savior and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. I was at a, at a Catholic funeral yesterday and the priest kept saying, peace be with you. There is no peace if you're a Catholic. There is no peace if you're a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness or a Buddhist or a Muslim. The only peace is found in Jesus Christ and his perfect work alone. <clears throat> Those who are of the faith this morning, I pray that this sermon was, was a reminder to you of the importance of obeying God's law. Not out of obligation, but out of love for God. Out of love for Christ. I pray this sermon was of good use for your Christian walk as you're reminded of, of the one that dwells inside of you. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead who comes alongside of you and advocates for you. He comforts you. He helps you. He teaches you and he directs you in all the ways of the truth. And lastly, I pray you understand the indescribable peace that you have with God. Please get this. Although trials, troubles, and tribulations from man may come your way, beloved, never let your hearts be troubled. Because judgment, wrath, and separation from God will never come your way. Right now, our room and our Father's kingdom is, is currently being reserved for us. And a crown of glory awaits us in that celestial city. <clears throat> where we will have everlasting joy. 
everlasting fellowship, everlasting peace, and everlasting rest in God. Let's stand.